Hello and welcome back to the podcast of the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. My name is Guy Melrose. This is part one of a two-part podcast conversation with Dr. Maple Goh. For part one, we talk about growing up in Brunei, moving to New Zealand, decisions to study medicine, the issues around getting boxed into one career, working at the time of COVID, and we start to touch on racism both in and out of medicine. We also mention the reasons she started her podcast, Dr. NOS. Now, a couple of things to mention before we start. As I've said already, this was recorded at the end of 2021, so before New Zealand had entered the current Omicron wave. Any reference to COVID is therefore from the context of being in the midst of New Zealand's Delta outbreak. And secondly, my apologies for my slightly croaky voice, especially at the start of the recording. We had just recorded a long chat for her podcast just prior, and I'd exhausted my tea supplies, so my voice at times sounds like it was about to give up. But that aside, let's join part one of our conversation. So welcome back to the podcast of the Royal New Zealand College of Urgent Care. My name is Guy Melrose and today I'm joined by Dr. Maple Goh, who is currently a PGY4 doctor in Auckland, who's uh, on the Royal Australasian College of Physicians training program. And Maple has recently started a podcast by the name of Doctors NOS, and she very kindly approached the college to see if one of us could speak uh, on her podcast, um, which we've dutifully done. And so we're now interested in, in hearing about Maple's medical journey and um, why, why it is she set up the podcast. So first of all, welcome, Maple, and thank you very much for agreeing to talk to us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. So I've mentioned Dr. NOS at the, at the outset there. I think the best place to start is what is Dr. NOS? What what does it uh, what does it stand for, and what uh, what was your goal in setting it up? So Dr. NOS stands for Doctor Not Otherwise Specified, and it was targeted primarily at junior doctors or resident doctors who were looking for careers. So it's a podcast providing career guidance, role modeling, and leadership to our resident medical officers. I started it early in the early days because I realized that so much of why we picked a career in medicine was so heavily dependent on what we were exposed to. And so you found that uh, many people picked physician training or surgical training because that was purely what we were exposed to in medicine. It got me thinking, how are the other ways that we could showcase careers to the vast arrays and diversity of RMOs that we have. Um, things like, for example, urgent care would be a really good example. Most of us would never get exposure to urgent care. It's not a placement that's offered to us. Um, we don't see doctors from urgent care unless you're a patient yourself presenting, of course. Um, so, so that was one of the careers. But there are many other careers that we gain no exposure to that could be very interesting to RMOs, like forensic psychiatry, uh, wilderness and expedition medicine, travel medicine. Um, so that was the start of the podcast. Now, there's a couple of layers to it. 
part of it is that the role modeling and leadership I find is a really important aspect to promote diversity and representation. Um, as somebody who is a migrant and who's an ethnic minority and a female, I found that navigating my way through medicine, it was really hard to picture myself in a career because I didn't see that representation in the upper echelons of medicine. For example, most of my SMOs are Pakeha, most of them are male, and I mean, it's deeply rooted in, in colonization, but it's deeply rooted in the fact that white men have been allowed to practice medicine for far longer than, than female people of color. So I started out this podcast with the vision that I would get better visibility of the different diverse diversity of SMOs that are there in medicine who just don't have the visibility. You know, we do have Māori SMOs, we do have Chinese SMOs, um, but they're just not spoken about and they don't hold positions of power as much as our white male counterparts do. So that's the other aspect of it. And then finally, the third aspect is that so many people who come through medicine are born into legacies of medicine. So we see parents who are plastic surgeons, uh, parents who are GPs, parents who are anesthetists, who can really forge a pathway for their children who then become the next generation of doctors. And this is amazing, but it's also problematic for people who are first generation doctors who come from low socioeconomic backgrounds, who come from rural backgrounds, who really have no access to medicine whatsoever. And when you have that inaccessibility and that's compounded by the fact that you don't understand the soft curriculum in medicine, it's a huge hindrance to continuing our career. And so when I created this podcast, I also created it with the vision of connecting our resident RMOs with our senior SMOs. And so that they wouldn't have to have that legacy in medicine. You don't need mom and dad to connect you to their colleague in plastic surgery because you could just get in touch with this podcast and get connected your way. So that's my extremely long-winded spiel of why I started this podcast. <laughs> and you mentioned you're um, uh, an, an immigrant to this country, um, like myself. But what is your particular journey to New Zealand where, where did where did you grow up and how did you find your way down here yeah sure so uh, I papa back to Brunei Darussalam so I'm Malaysian Chinese and I was born and raised in Brunei um, I migrated here primarily out of um, a family that came from I guess quite extensive domestic violence and so my mom moved us over here for safety. So I began my journey here in New Zealand alone at the age of 13. And I moved to Dunedin, where I went to boarding school, and then progressed from there and went to medical school. So that's, that's my heritage. And we talked about this on your podcast, I'm one of those people who have a family uh, gene, if you like, within medicine, although I haven't... Um, uh, I, I've sort of drifted off to the other side of the world and, and, and left my, <laughs> I've literally gone as far from my family as possible, um, which isn't to say that I don't like them. It's more a sign of how much I love New Zealand. Um, but did, did you have any, um, what was your what was your trigger for medicine? What what, what inspired you to, to take up this career? Yeah, sure. Um, so my my parents never left school, so... We came from quite a poor background and my mom, I think, finished school up to year eight um, and my dad was maybe year nine or ten. 
And so they never even finished high school. Um, a lot of my extended family are still not literate um, and they still lead lives marked by deprivation. So when I came into medicine, I chose medicine for two reasons. I think primarily one, I was extremely naive. I was ignorant and I didn't realize what medicine entailed. Uh, certainly the training and the exams that came with it was a road shock to the system. Um, and then secondly, I think I came in with a really naive mindset that I wanted to help people. And obviously now, as, as you progress on in your career and in your life, you know that there are many ways of helping people that don't have to be as black and white as, as treating someone with antibiotics. But certainly at the age of 17, that wasn't a realization I had come to yet. So I think those are my two main reasons for why I stepped into medicine. And, and unfortunately, they were both very naive. <laughs> I think that's true of a lot of people. Though. I don't think you, I mean, it's interesting, I mentioned I've, um, I think the people in my life who are medical tried very hard to convince me not to do medicine. And that seems to be a common trait amongst a lot of people who I, I've met who are, um, have a family of medicine that, that they say, no, don't do it because it, it's hard. There's, the exams are difficult. The, the work is, you know, the, it, it's a difficult job. Um, rewarding and definitely worth doing. Um, but yeah, I think at 17, 18, going off to university, we are all a little bit naive as to where, where we go. And also, I think we're, we have this kind of bubble of maybe five years ahead of us where we think we're going and things change so much as you, as you grow up and, and choose your, your career. And um, I'd be interested to know your training with the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. So what's made you make that, that choice to go down the physician route at this mm. point? Um, to be fair, I think my choice in pursuing physician medicine has been the path of least resistance. Um, I don't think necessarily that I feel particularly inspired and I don't know that I've got a, a pathway laid out for me. Um, and, and that that's part of the reason why I created the podcast in the first place is that I realized on reflection how much I was just following the path of least resistance. It was checking off the next tick box. It was moving on from e-port to BPAC to, to the next, you know, evaluation pathway. And on, I guess, reflection of this, I was like, this is actually not acceptable. This isn't how we should be leading our lives. And it's certainly not how we should be leading our training programs. Um, and, and I hope that people can make more informed choices about the careers they pursue. Um, so, I can't say that I'm an RACP because I, I am a blossoming physician and I, I aspire to be the best physician. Um, I think I have just found myself in this career. And we touched on this when we talked earlier. That to me is fine. I think people should have that kind of self-awareness that um, you know you, you do what you're doing at the moment and if, if you find it's you're going down a cul-de-sac and you don't like it, then people should be prepared to, to move. And I do sadly know a number of people who feel that they've been corralled down one route and felt like they couldn't jump off for, for whatever reason. And um, and yeah, it is, it, it's interesting to, I guess, talk, you've presumably talked to people who are um, in the earlier stages of their careers. Have you spoken to anybody nearing the end of their careers to, to, get, to look 
a retrospective view of what would they have done differently? Have you had a chat with anyone on that sort of level? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've been fortunate in that the creation of this podcast has created a platform for me to talk to such people. Um, so I know people who have switched routes completely, even as a SMO. Um, so they've trained in, let's say, psychiatry and switched over and decided to do physician training or vice versa, people who have been previous surgeons and have switched over to do psych psychiatry. And these are as fully fledged SMOs. Um, I do think that there is a layer there of of the privilege that comes with that, because when when you do take on the cost of training, there are a lot of invisible costs associated with retraining. Um, and I think that definitely contributes to why a lot of us get on that ladder and we start climbing. And it's hard to get off even though we're climbing the wrong ladder. And it's it's just a sunk cost fallacy, isn't it? We look back and we're like, well, we're in this this deep and this far. It's too late to turn back. Um, so there certainly are SMOs that I've spoken to who have rewinded and decided to start again. There are RMOs who I've spoken to that have decided to change tact completely. And part of my podcast is giving these people more visibility so that it's more accepted rather than being treated like a leper just because you've decided that this isn't for you because you made this decision when you were 18. Mm. Yeah, that is an interesting consideration. And I've had discussions with, with people close to me about this is that are you, if you change track, are you wasting money that could have gone to somebody else? And um, and and it, it becomes an, a discussion that you can go round and round in circles at. And I think the way I've always come down to is that a physician or, or surgeon for that matter, but a, a doctor of who's unhappy in their career isn't the best doctor um they they there's good studies that show that people who experience burnout um and get, develop compassion fatigue that they're not good doctors um they're, they're good doctors underneath but they're not able to be their best because the the um the weight of what they're doing is is just on their shoulders it's suppressing them to the point where they they're, they're not being their best and they're not enjoying their medicine and that that reflects onto their patients um a patient will will not get as good a care so in the end of the day we are tools for making patients better and if we're not looking after ourselves we become like a blunt knife and we become more danger than than um than than and, and so it's better than that you make that break and do something different so that you can flourish in something else and people shouldn't be um frightened to do that and i think it's it, it's long been a problem that it was almost the un, the unspoken conversation. People might say it at dinner parties, sort of between friends, but then it wouldn't get out into the main world. It would just your closest friends would would know. Um, but is your podcast there for reaching these people in a way to say, hey, this is okay to think like this and to 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 speak like this and to. Um, and shine a light on good examples of people who said, no, I'm going to go and do something else. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, I mean, there there is a, a saying that sunlight is the best disinfectant. But I think, unfortunately, that saying's been tarnished by Trump, who's now used it in, in, in COVID. So, um, so, so part of it was was visibility of this. And I think it's hard to talk about medicine and talk about either le leaving medicine or changing track in medicine without coming off gratuitous without coming off um, privileged and and selfish and 
And what you're say what you're saying is exactly right with we don't want burnt out doctors. We don't want doctors who aren't serving the best interests of their patients. We don't want doctors who are trying to to skive off work, who are trying to quit all the time. I, I don't think that serves the patient need at all. Um, but I think partly it's just about having these conversations. I, I think leading life is is getting more and more complex over time. And and I mean, what do I know? I'm I'm 27. I hardly know anything about life itself and the complexities it entails. But what I do think is that people want different things from life these days compared to perhaps what was the expectation of us 20 or 30 years ago. And I think especially with the incoming pandemic or the pandemic that has already set people are starting to question whether this is actually what they want. Do they want to be laboring away for 70 to 90 hours a week in hospital? Do we want to risk our lives in hospital? Like, do we know the number of health professionals that have died overseas because of COVID? And I think it's important to ask these questions, even if perhaps the answer is that yes, you do, and that you want to stay in this track, but we need to have these conversations anyway. We need to be making informed choices about our careers as we do make informed choices about everything in our lives. I'm interested in what you just said there about the pandemic. And it is the first time in my medical career that unless you went off to fight Ebola in, in Africa or um, work on the front lines as a military um, health professional, um, this is the first time that ordinary doctors going to work in hospitals and clinics around the world have faced danger that, um, that, that that's directly attributable to their job. And it is a sobering thought. And I've often asked myself this question, is it reasonable to be frightened to go to work now that we have COVID established? Um, I'm grateful we've had the chance to get vaccinated um, because that, that that was what a lot of our colleagues around the world didn't have in the initial phases where we managed to, to get rid of COVID from our shores at least. Um, but now that it's here, there is definitely that fear. And how is that reflected if somebody said, I'm going to step down because I'm fearful now of my, my life? Um, have you spoken to anybody who's had that conversation yet on your podcast or even in just in, in passing people who've maybe said that to you because I know there's a lot of people on the front line in urgent care swabbing and seeing sick people um, who I'd be surprised if it hadn't crossed their mind because it's crossed my mind. Mm. I think um, I've met a range of, exp of, of opinions I suppose and on one end I had an occupational health physician who told me what did you expect when you stepped into this job? And I was very surprised by that response because I certainly didn't expect to die on my job. Um, and But on the other hand, I have met a real palpable fear in the hospital. Um, I've worked in, in public health during the time of the Delta outbreak, and then now I'm working in inpatient hospital care. And there is fear. There's fear, there's tension, and I think people are unwilling to speak about it out of fear that they're going to be judged, that they're doctors, this is just what they're meant to do. But this is, we, we're not veterans, we're not, you know, we're not soldiers of war. We didn't, we didn't sign up to this job thinking we would lose our lives or we would lose our lives now to people with callous disregard for vaccination. 
I mean, these are the people who are now putting our lives most at risk, right, by being unvaccinated and presenting to the hospital and spreading infection and disease. And and now we're thinking, gosh, we didn't think this would happen to us. We've had fleeting episodes of measles and fleeting episodes of, of other GI um, diseases that have swept through New Zealand, but certainly not a pandemic. And so I, I do think this fear is there. And I do think that people are unwilling to speak about it because because there's judgment, and I don't, I don't think there should be. And this leads me into my next thought. You mentioned your um, where, where, where you came from, your your background, um, and obviously in the initial stages when COVID appeared out of Wuhan, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of race based um, criticisms about COVID. And I've certainly heard stories of um, of Asian people in general being criticised uh, or, or, or facing racist comments because of, of where COVID originated. Um, has that been a, something you've experienced as a clinician, as a doctor? And, and if so, how, how have you dealt with that? I think it's interesting as a clinician, I personally haven't experienced that professionally. Um, and I do think that that's because there is a, a difference in dynamic between the patient and the doctor and what the patient is willing to say to a doctor. But certainly in personal settings, and I guess on the bus or in public transport or just walking along the street, I just remember the dirty looks I would get. And in the earliest days, this was in, you know, January, February 2020, when things were just starting to bloom. And it was still being racistly labeled as the Wuhan virus or the Chinese virus by Trump and thanks to his his endeavors. And so that was very much the mentality that was going around at the time. And even though, sure, nobody voiced it to me, I do I did notice that there was a change in the dynamic that I felt in public. And, you know, even in my times where I had my allergies and I had hay fever, I felt self-conscious sneezing and coughing because people would immediately assume these these facts about me. And in a professional setting, however, I think I have been fortunate. I do know of other Chinese clinicians who have been accused of bringing the virus into the country, who have been accused of being responsible, who have been who have requested for a different clinician. And I think it's unfortunate because we we don't talk about these things partly out of respect but partly out of patient confidentiality. Um, you know, we are bound by those agreements. And so therefore, it's not for us to hang these people out to dry and to say, this so-and-so patient has said this terrible thing. Um, but I can tell you that it does happen. And leading off from COVID, but just into medicine in general, race or racism within within your medical career um, not not from colleagues, but from patients. Um, you hear stories. Um, there was a a good example of it from a in a in a in a film version. I don't know if you've seen the um, best exotic marigold marigold hotel, um, where the where um, I think it was um, Maggie Smith's character was asking for an English doctor when she was in the hospital, and they and and, a, and a, they bring a brown doctor around who speaks 
in an English accent and was obviously born and raised in England and as, as English as I am. Um, and the look on her face when she's told he is an English doctor. <laughs> um, and, and that was a, a, a nice example for filmic comedic purposes to highlight what does happen, I think, with patients, particularly older patients, um, but but I would imagine young patients too. Have you experienced um, non-COVID related racist comments? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the from there's there's multiple layers to this. You get patient to doctor interactions that have racist interplay. You have uh, doctor to patient racism for sure, and you have intercollegial racism as well that happens in the hospital and outside of the hospital. So patient to doctor wise, in terms of what I've experienced, I've been kicked out of a clinic before because they wanted someone who was Kiwi. Um, And unfortunately, in that situation, the consultant did not back me. And it might have been because I was a medical student at the time. And they may have felt that their rapport with their patient took more importance than developing, I guess, racial interrelations with with their medical student and their the patient. So perhaps it was out of the fact that they didn't feel like that was a good learning opportunity for the patient, but it certainly was an eye-opening experience for me. So that that's one of the ways. I mean, that's probably quite an overt example of, of how racism can occur in, in medicine from patient to doctor, but certainly there are microaggressions that do occur, and that's in patients persistently asking me where I come from and where I really come from, even when I say I'm from Dunedin, um, and asking me why I speak English so well. And that's not to say the history of colonization all globally. We, we all, Many of us speak English all across the world. Um, so it is interesting. Most of the time, it's not in the form of overt racism. Most of the time, it is just in the form of these microaggressions. So that's it for part one of our conversation. If you have any comments or questions, email podcast at rnzcuc.org.nz. Now, we'll be back again next week with part two, in which we go on to talk more about race and gender inequities and how we can learn to listen and learn to affect change. I look forward to seeing you all then, but for now, thanks for listening.